Oops, I shut myself off. Book of Proverbs, chapter 18 this evening, on our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and get their attention, and they will get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Proverbs chapter 18, we pick things up tonight in verse 20. And Solomon writes, by the Spirit of God, A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth, that is, by his words. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. And so this speaks of good words that come out of a good heart, and they have a way of being appreciated in life have a way of being rewarded uh, in life. Uh, If anybody doesn't learn how to control their speech, what to say in a right situation, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, um, the idea is that person uh, might find that their speech or their use of their mouth is unappreciated and they're fired. And now they don't um, have anything to eat as a result of that. And so people like to have people around them. They like to hire people um, and all where uh, there is uh, wisdom coming from their mouth and their speech is gracious and it's satisfying to others. Verse 21, life and death or death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. And so the potential of words, uh, the potential of our words for uh, evil, the potential of our words for good in other people's lives, and uh, we're going to eat the fruit of our words, the uh, writer tells us. In other words, we're going to bear the consequences of our words, so it's good to think about what we're going to say uh, before we speak and think, what's the effect of what I'm just about to say upon this group of people or upon this person? And am I willing to bear the consequences of what it is that I'm uh, just about to say? And it's just a proverb of making us slow down and think before we speak. And that's never a bad thing. Um, Sometimes we do have to say hard things. We do have to um, use our speech to sometimes say something to a person that we know is going to create a bit of a trial in their life. It's not going to be easy for them to receive, but we know that we are speaking it to them after prayer and um, uh, that we've kind of counted the costs related to all of that ahead of time. Verse 22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so uh, uh, Solomon is telling us that marriage is a good thing. And uh, uh, generally speaking, it's, there can be exceptions, but marriage is a blessing, and uh, that's the rule concerning marriage. So problems that occur in marriage, they occur, can occur for a lot of reasons. Sometimes problems can be um, 50-50. The difficulty in the marriage is half the husband's fault, half the wife's fault. Sometimes it can be 90-10, 99-1 in one direction or the other. But always the quality of the marriage is a reflection on either one or both partners in that marriage 
Um, it's never a, a, a bad reflection on marriage itself. And I think that's very good for young people to hear. We see more and more people are looking with suspicion upon marriage and they say, why would I get married or why would I involve myself in the institution of God when um, so many of them end in divorce, etc., etc." And so they're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and they're, conclu- they're coming to conclusions about marriage and God's institution when what they ought to be doing is coming to conclusions about the two people that are involved in that particular marriage, not the institution itself. Marriage is a wonderful thing, and it is a gift from God uh, to man. And so he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and it's one of the ways that the Lord brings favor into our life. And, of course, the same thing is true of a husband. The poor man uses entreaties, uh, but the rich man uh, answers roughly. So, in general, if you are a poorer person in life or you are a more powerless person in life, uh, we learn very, very quickly uh, to be careful about what we say and how uh, we say things because we don't have the margins to needlessly offend other people. So people coming from that side of the tracks uh, in general uh, demonstrate a little more humility in what uh, comes out of their mouths. The rich person, one of the temptations of wealth is to become very, very careless in speech and uh, treat people roughly and throw their weight around and that kind of thing. And it comes out of pride and a sense of uh, self-importance. And this is a warning against that kind of thing. No matter whether we're rich or whether we're poor, um, and there's challenges to both sides in terms of properly representing Christ, um, we shouldn't, uh, our speech should be the same and how we treat people should be the same. The amount of money that we have should never, ever change that. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this is a very good uh, proverb for um, how to be a friend, how to attract uh, friends. Some people attract friends uh, more easily than other people do, and so friendliness in a person is a key to attracting friends. Sometimes when we want a friend, we think that um, this is all a one-way street. I want a friend, and so they need to be friendly. And we can forget that uh, they're looking for a friend too, not a black emotional hole uh, or a one-way relationship that they're looking for a friend as well. So they're looking for a friendly person, and, uh, and that makes it easier for them to then come and, uh, and, and establish that kind of friendship. And the proverb teaches us that there are some friends who are closer than others, and that's true for all of us in life. And uh, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Very, very uh, beautiful reference, of course, to Jesus, who is the closest friend that a person can ever have. Who would be your friend if they knew everything about you like Jesus knows about you? Well, it's not really fair to turn it on you, is it? I speak to myself. What a friend he is. How loyal. Day or night. Day or night. I have a friend, he's a pastor, and he is on a vacation in Tahiti. He's a son. He loves the sun. So this time of the year just kills him. 
So they got this deal, and he is a wheeler, dealer, par, whatever. I don't know. He may, before he gets off that boat, he and his wife may own the cruise ship. I don't know what he's going to do on there. But um, I uh, gave him a call earlier this week, and I didn't think, okay, California time, Tahiti time. I called him uh, fairly early in the morning. I thought, oh, no, I've called him like at uh, 3 in the morning at his first or second day or anything like that. Well, it ended up just being a couple of hours of difference, and I called him late enough that he needed to be up anyway. He's a pastor. He's not like everybody else on that cruise ship. So um, uh, so some people are more or less eager, you know, to hear about us any time, day or night. And the Lord is willing to hear us at any time. He's instantly just a friend. I don't have to, like, work anything up. It's funny. You can be uh, go to bed at night and be uh, mid-sentence in a prayer, and off you go. Boom, you're gone. And in the morning you can wake up, the thought can be right there, and the Lord will have waited eight hours for you to finish the sentence. That's a good friend. And you just pick the conversation up right from there. I would never consider Jesus to be my friend except, I said, okay, my Lord, my God, the fear of the Lord and respect and all those things, but that he would kind of deign to call me friend is marvelous. I think in John chapter 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And here he says, You are my friends. <laughs> i got to get a badge that says that. That's a pretty good title. He calls me friend. And sometimes, you know, when we live for Christ, and depending on the circumstance or the family that we're in or the situation that we're in, it can cost us some friends. It always costs us friends to be faithful to the Lord. Sometimes it can cost us all of our friends, depending on where we come from. But we gain this friend. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Chapter 19, verse 1. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity, that is, he lives a morally right life, than one who is perverse in his lips. In other words, he becomes wealthy by virtue of lying and uh, cheating. Uh, And uh, more than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. So this teaches us that personal integrity is worth more than money. And that's the truth of it. So you see people who gain all of this money. Um, God looks at Bernie Madoff's heart and his mind in that prison cell. And he wants to save and he wants to forgive Bernie Madoff. But he's the only one that knows the heart of a man or woman who would look and say, I would give everything that I've ever had in my life to have not fudged related to my integrity in that decision right there that seems so small, but it set me on a path to put me in this terrible place. And here's why. We've got to live with ourselves. You can't... We cannot escape ourselves. And we cannot escape who and what we are. And the person who can look in the mirror and say, I like what God is doing here. And I like what he's making me into. And I know today that I'm current with him. 
and I'm sincere and walking with him in my relationship with him. I'm not perfect yet, but he's doing good things. There's no known hypocrisy in my life. That person is far richer than the person who gains the whole world through cheating because every day they get up in the mirror, they've got to either know I'm looking at a liar and a cheat or they've got to do something even worse and more destructive, and that is to harden their heart to that fact and then continue down that path. And so having personal integrity, knowing I'm right with God, uh, even if that means poverty or being poor in order for that to happen, that is a person who is rich and in contrast to a person who is materially rich and, and doesn't have that richness in their life. Also, it is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he who sin and he sins who hastens with his feet. So this is a description of a man who doesn't know what to do in a particular situation in his life or how to do what to do, and so he hurries to do something anyway. And that kind of a person, and I think probably most of us have experienced it at some time or another in our life, uh, the proverb tells us that he's going to make a mess of everything. Type A's have to look out for this. So type A's, it's like, um, do something even if it's wrong. And uh, so they make haste, action, 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 move it, let's go, and uh, keep it, uh, keep the ball going and, and all. And uh, far better, the proverb says, to just slow down and pray, get God's wisdom in his timing, and then hasten to accomplish what he wants us uh, to do. We have a saying, of course, in the culture, haste makes waste, and it really does because uh, usually when we make haste in a situation, we make it a bigger mess than it already is. So the situation we're trying to hastily take care of, now we've now there's three gigantic things that have to get cleaned up before we can address the original problem because we moved too fast and we did whatever uh, we were fearful of, driven by fear or anxiousness or a lack of faith, and now we make uh, a mess of things. And so uh, I think, again... Uh, I've certainly been there and don't want to be there again and, and that, that kind of a thing. So it would be better to sometimes not to do anything than to do that and, and make it worse. Like Isaiah chapter 28, whoever believes, the Bible says, will not make haste. And so when we have faith in the Lord and trust in the Lord, we have his mind related to a situation. There is no need for uh, carnal haste in addressing something, we can calmly deal with it. It's one of the beautiful things about Jesus. Everything's beautiful about Jesus. But you go through the Scriptures. Did you ever see him frantic in the, the Gospels? That'd be something. You'd go to the Louvre and see a picture of Jesus, and he's just like... There's no pictures of him like that. He's never anxious, never at haste always just getting a million things done, as full a plate as anybody's ever had, let's live this life, and yet he didn't make haste. He's got the mind of the Lord related to the situation, and then move forward. And that sure minimizes mistakes, doesn't it? Verse 3, the foolishness of a man twists his way, and in other words, it mess up his life. And his heart frets against the Lord. Now, this is a, wow, this is a very interesting proverb. 
And it is a, the description of a very, very common uh, folly even today. And here's what it describes. It describes the person who ruins his life by deliberately disobeying God's commandments. And then after he's done that, he then blames God or he gets mad at God for the mess that he has made of his own life through his own mistakes and his own decisions. And he gets mad at God for how hard his life has become. How could there be a God if this? And, and he's the one that's created the whole bed that he's lying in. And then, but he self-deceives him, himself into thinking that God has failed him when God didn't fail him at all. And so this tendency to blame God for the problems that I have made. Oh, it's nothing new at all. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. Remember when God confronted Adam with his sin? Adam said, the woman that you gave me. In, one, in half a sentence, he, put him, he separated himself two persons from personal responsibility for a situation. I mean, he's a ma- as soon as he fell, he became a master blame shifter. Listen, I'd have never been in this fix unless you gave me that woman. So I know you two got a lot to think about and talk about right over there. I'll be here when you clear all that up. And then I think you'll see I'm, you know, pretty clean on all of this. And God said, boy, Adam, I'm so thankful for your insights and your discernment. I was almost going to drive you out of the garden. But now I'll just drive Eve out of the garden. No, I drove them both out of the garden. God didn't buy it because he'd kind of made his own bed and all of that. But it is a dangerous self-deception. Sometimes we can, and I've met many people through the years. That's why I kind of pause here a little bit. They are so angry at God over their life that they have produced in defiance of God's commandments. God had a completely different plan. And then that keeps them away from God at the very moment that they desperately need to draw close to the Lord. And uh, so it's just this very toxic um, combination. And this proverb exposes it so we don't fall prey to it. Wealth makes many friends. Oh, boy, doesn't it? And I got them just clinging to me like crazy. All you got to do is just talk to anybody who's ever won the lottery. or The, the likelihood of you or I to, talking to one of those people is pretty unlikely. But you follow kind of the story. Or here's the kid that gets drafted in the first round, the NBA draft or the NFL draft or whatever it might be. Boy, does he have a lot of friends all at once. And so money attracts friends. But what kind of friends are they? And are they really, you know, worthy of the name? So, yeah, it draws a lot of friends, but they're false friends. They can be fair-weather friends. One thing about the poor says, but the poor is separated from his friend. The thing about the poor is at least the poor person knows. He may not have much money, but he knows who his friends are. Because he doesn't have anything to offer anybody else but his little old self. And so people must like him in order to be his friend. And I'll tell you, that's a a rich uh, thing on on its own. And so the poor doesn't have these kind of friends. If there's an advantage to being poor, and there are some, 
Uh, this is one of them. Uh, they know uh, who their true friends are. Um, but the second part of that proverb, but the poor is separated from his friend, it speaks about that that's a truth too, that people will abandon friends uh, because of their um, income level or because of their uh, influence or their position in life. And it's a terrible thing for a poor person to be abandoned by someone simply because that person is embarrassed to be associated with uh, someone because of their poverty. And the beautiful thing is that the Lord will never do that. The Lord loves everybody. He loves the rich and he loves the poor. The Bible talks about the poor who are rich in faith. God loves to bless the poor and he will never ever say, yes, here's my you know, good friend and, and here's a group of saints over here and, and all of their, you know, their self-worth is, their worth is, you know, in the billions of dollars or whatever. And then, yeah, I saved a few of these folks over here. He never does that. In fact, he warns the church, listen, when you've got rich people coming into the church, don't bring them up to the front and then hide the poor people and all of that stuff, especially if you're televising the service and they're going up and, you know, looking at the kind of thing. That's weird, isn't it? Weird to have cameras in a service like that. I've only been in a service one time where they had cameras like that, where they're like filming the audience at the same time that the service is going on. It kind of creeps me out. You don't have to. It's just like... That's it. I can't bring the worship team up. It's just thrown me completely off now. So I know people do it. There's liberty. They can do all of that, that kind of stuff. And, um, and I don't know why I'm getting off into it anyway. So there's some kind of a stream of abnormal consciousness here. So, so God loves us all and he loves the poor. Uh, He'll never treat the poor that way. Verse 5, a false witness will not go unpunished. So somebody who's committing perjury in a court of law, that person will go punished, uh, will be punished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. And so honesty is the best policy, we say, uh, in life, but also in a court of law, and lies do catch up. Uh, to us. God will ultimately punish that kind of person, whether in this life or the life to come. So the lesson is uh, don't lie. And of course, the importance of truthfulness is a foundation for uh, a system of law and order within a nation. Once everybody's lying on the witness stand, it's more than the beginning of the end. That's a well-advanced stage for the end of, uh, of that particular country. Now you're headed to deep corruption. Verse 6, many entreat the favor of the nobility because they're powerful and uh, they have resources. And every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. And so this is the, um, a, uh, the, what we have here is the fallenness of man on full display. Uh, many, many people will only seek friends based upon what they can get from that person. Sometimes materially, sometimes emotionally, sometimes uh, whatever it might be, but they're looking to get something uh, from that person, some favor that they want to uh, get from them. And so they're always working it. They'll never consider a friendship with somebody that uh, they have to do more giving than receiving in the friendship. It's always upward mobility. And it's a very ugly characteristic in a person. And this proverb is intended to 
uh, cure us of it if we're so afflicted. Verse 7, all the brothers, and the idea is relatives, of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them for friendship or for help with words. Be my friend, please. I, I, I like the friendship. Don't. And yet they abandon him. And so, again, it speaks of those who abandon other people, friendships, because, again, um, that person doesn't have anything materially that I can gain from them uh, by maintaining that uh, friendship. So it's condemning uh, that that kind of a attitude in terms of of developing uh, friendships, where I won't even consider a friendship with a poor person because what can I get from them? Uh, there's a lot of things that friendship offer than access to material things, and in fact, that means absolutely nothing in a friendship. And so, how do we value people? How do we value relationships? And uh, sometimes we have a we speak in our culture and we say, you know, see that guy over there? He's worth $10 million. See that person over there? You know, she's worth $20 million. And the whole lot, you see how we do it? We say if we're measuring a person's worth by their money. And they may be financially worth that amount, but it speaks nothing to their worth at all as a human being. And here you have a person over here who doesn't have two quarters to rub together and they can end up being the greatest friend that a person can ever have. And so we measure worth so often, even in terms of relationships or friendships, by virtue of money rather than character and these kind of things. And so, again, it's repeated over and over again in the book of Proverbs, so it must be something that um, we need to be reminded of. God is no respecter of persons, period. Verse 8, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul, and he who keeps understanding will find good. And so the importance of getting wisdom from God, keeping that wisdom. A lot of people will get wisdom from God at some point in their life, and um, that's been uh, bestowed upon them. That's something that's become a foundation uh, in their life, and then over time they begin to exchange that wisdom from God with uh, all of the expert opinions of the world. And uh, then that becomes the greater wisdom in their life, and they end up paying a terrible price in terms of peace and in terms of joy and faith as a result of that. And they pay a price uh, for it. And so get wisdom from God. And, uh, and then hold on to it and don't be seduced by man's wisdom between here and heaven. Uh, there's a beautiful passage in Colossians chapter 2. It's kind of on my heart, so I'll read it to you. Verse 8, Paul writes and he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are mostly complete in him. That's not what it says. It says you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Never exchange God's wisdom for the wisdom of man. Uh, people that do so pay a terrible price physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually for having done so. And this warns us against it. Verse 9, a false witness will not go 
unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. So again, a warning to liars and perjurers. And we've seen this over and over again. It's virtually identical to verse five, but it speaks to us of the fact of how prevalent this kind of thing must be that God continues to warn related to it. So it's not going to be in one ear and out the other. Any of us can be tempted to lie when the stakes are very high, self-preservation, so to speak, we think is hanging in the balance or whatever's hanging in the balance, and these needed warnings against that. Be honest in the situation. Sometimes it can be uh, the hardest thing to do at the moment, but there is something harder, and that is to continue uh, to lie and down the path of a lie because the exposure is that much more painful down the road, and ultimately the exposure comes. Verse 10, luxury is not fitting or becoming or a pretty sight uh, for the fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. And so luxury in the hands of a fool and princes made uh, subservient to unqualified uh, servants, both of them end up being wasted. You see that all the time all around the world where you see these dictators and potentates that have taken over countries. They don't know how to lead. All they know is how to bully, how to grab the military arm, how to threaten, how to uh, terrorize people and this kind of thing. And then people who are truly gifted and able to lead, um, they get thrown by the wayside uh, because this guy is at the helm. And so luxury is wasted. All of these human resources are wasted because... Uh, this person has uh, been able to take that position. A fool is in that position. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. So maturity in a person is marked by two things. Number one, he or she will be slow to anger uh, before those who offend them. And then number two, he or she will be willing to overlook a transgression. And uh, it's a glory for such a person uh, to be able to do that and to do that. It's a glory to the other people that are around them, but it's also a glory in their lives. It's beautiful in their lives, but it's a peaceful way uh, to live as well. The king's wrath is like a roaring lion. But his favor is like dew on the grass. And so this is a proverb that warns against rebelling against law and order. And a king is to reward obedience and he is to uh, punish uh, disobedience. And a good king needs to express uh, both of those things. And that's what he's in that position to do. Uh, Anyone in leadership a king or otherwise. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. So here we have um, a verse that is underlined in many the Bibles of many men. I'm just kidding. But it speaks to men, and it speaks about two things that make a man's life miserable. And it's good for uh, children to understand it about men. 
And it's good for wives to understand it about men as well. And the two things that make a man's life miserable, number one, a disobedient son. A disobedient son brings devastation into the life of a father. And that when it talks about a foolish son is the ruin of his father, the word ruin means a chasm. Uh, In other words, that kind of a son creates this, he sucks his father into this very, very deep pit and trial. And that kind of a child does that to a father. Uh, The second thing that makes life miserable for a man is a quarrelsome or a nagging wife, a wife who likes to fight. And uh, Solomon says that, and Solomon was an expert. He had a thousand wives and concubines. Serves them right, really. But we, have, we get the blessing of a proverb out of it. But he probably, if you're going to have a thousand wives and concubines, you're going to get a fair amount of this in the mix uh, as well. So a quarrelsome wife, a nagging wife, one that likes to fight, is a real, uh, makes life miserable for a, uh, a husband. Uh, she's likened to a leaking faucet. Leaking faucet is... Uh, number one, very irritating. And uh, number two, sometimes very, very hard to fix. Now, verse 14, we won't belabor any of that. Uh, we'll get out while we're still safe. Verse 14, but if the shoe fits, you know, that's what they're all are there. Oh, I meant to get out of it before I said anything else on it. He's going to come back to this over and over and over again. And, it, and it'll be the wise uh, wife that will... Um, you know, heed that. I know it's a two-way street. There's two sides, all of that. He'll get the guys and the husbands and other proverbs. But apparently um, there can be a tendency on the part of some wives to do this and to be this and either have a blind spot related to it or disregard the warning. And that's why it's in the book, so that people take that seriously. Verse 14, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers. That's the kind of thing that fathers can give uh, to their descendants. But a prudent man, uh, but I'm sorry, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And so the word prudent means one who behaves wisely. A prudent wife is from the Lord. And so earthly fathers, they can give houses and riches, but only God can give a prudent wife. You know why? Because he's the only one who can make a prudent wife. And so when we receive a wife and we marry a wife who is prudent, we have received a gift from the Lord. We have received something that only he could have produced. So it's important to be praying ahead of time. If you're single and you want to be married someday, to pray for that husband, to pray for that wife that is coming. Lord, develop their character and you put them together and make them a prudent person and all and, uh, and be engaged in their life even before they come on the scene. Verse 15, laziness casts one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. So laziness and idleness is like a drug, isn't it? I mean, you think you would never get sleepy being lazy or inactive. 
But you do. You get sleepy and you get tired. It makes one sleepier than ever, even though a person hasn't even done anything. And it's funny because you, sometimes you wake up and you just feel like this, you know. Uh, uh. And then you go off to work and you do a full day's work and you feel great. You couldn't believe you could do the whole day's work and you feel better than when you started. But you just sit home in your pajamas and, uh, uh, and then the next thing you know you're in bed. And then the next thing you know it's 5 o'clock. And it's got this whole addictive side uh, of things. The problem with it is that, uh, as the proverb tells us, is that idleness and hunger go together for the simple reason that a person needs to work in order to eat. And, uh, and so the proverbs, uh, the, the proverb calling for uh, the necessity of work and not giving in to laziness and idleness. And it's interesting, all of these proverbs that talk about work and a work ethic, one after the other after the other, all the way through the book, all the way through the Bible, God expresses tremendous compassion towards uh, the poor. And, uh, but he, he is very, very strong in exhorting the lazy. He, um, he has no sympathy or excuses for the lazy uh, person, and he certainly offers no excuses to them. Verse 16, he who keeps the commandment uh, keeps his own, keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. So what's the very best thing that I can do for my soul? Obey God's word. The Bible says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. You realize every commandment that God has given in his word is given out of a, a heart of love for us and out of a motivation uh, for good in our lives. So the single best thing that we can ever do for ourselves. So here we are. We're in the self-dominated culture, the United States of America. Well, here's a book. The best thing that you can do for yourself is to obey God's commandment. It wouldn't be a long book. It would be like a leaflet. You could put it up in borders and uh, give them away. You wouldn't have to even sell them. But that's the best thing that we can do for ourselves And the proverb tells us that recklessness concerning God's commandments, it's self-destructive. And it is, it always is, and it can lead even to death. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. So this is how God wants us to see our giving to the poor, that we are giving to the Lord in doing this. I'm giving this to you. Jesus loves you. And I'm giving it to you in his name. Do you know about Jesus? Have you heard about his love and his salvation and, and giving to the poor? And God promises to repay our generosity to the poor with his own generosity toward us, which may be in the form of money or may be in the form of, of something else. And so the poor, that's a funny thing. Sometimes, depending on what your circles are, you may not, you and I may not be in regular contact necessarily with a lot of poor people, or maybe you are every single day with a lot of them. It just depends on what, where people work, what their circles are, all that kind of, of stuff. Well, they had this thing in the, um, we went over to Costco to uh, buy some gasoline about a month ago or so. And uh, as we were leaving from there, you know, most of the intersection is in Modesto during the daytime. People are asking for money with a cardboard sign. And, 
and different things. And there was a guy that was standing there, and he had his wife, and he had his two younger children with him, two or three uh, younger children. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, oh, those kids have just got to be dying, you know, standing there, and here's the cardboard thing, and need food and hungry, please help, God bless. And, um, and, and so looking at that, and it's hard sometimes to know whether things are a scam or what they are or anything. Well, it ends up in the B that these folks were gypsies from somewhere, and this was something that they did up and down the valley. And uh, in two hours, they made $380. That's a, that's a couple hundred dollars an hour. That's probably more than most of us make on a, in a, uh, at any given time. And so the whole thing was a scam. Somebody who wrote, you know, sometimes they put these articles in and then they've got the comments down below. Somebody had to be like an accountant or something. They figured it out two hours and then times 40 hours per week and then times the year and all. And that if they were able to keep up that kind of a rate, they'd make uh, almost $400,000 a year. So they got caught, they got arrested and all of those kind of things. So sometimes you look at that and you hear all of the stories and that the money goes in and all you got to do is look within eye shot of where's the local liquor store, or where the drug's going to be bought and that kind of stuff. And all that is true. And I remember I had a friend when the church was first starting down in Tenth and F. He got saved. The Lord completely transformed his life. And what a miraculous story. But um, he told me he used to work the truck stop down the road toward Turlock. And uh, it wasn't anything for him to have $400 in 15 minutes with whatever kind of story he worked up and the whole deal. So he's talking about the subculture there a little bit and things. And it can harden our heart toward the poor. So here's one of the things that is important for us uh, to do uh, because uh, there's a lot of poor people all, all over the place. And God... Uh, wants to uh, channel resources through us to them. And so we have to have an eye for the poor that's different than just street corners where they're presenting themselves to us. Always have to be led of the Lord and all of those kind of things because sometimes I suppose it could be legitimate. But I remember we had a prayer meeting here, one of the pre-service prayer meetings on the Sunday night, and one of the women prayed about that related to helping the poor and identifying the poor um, in our midst. And it's just good just in life, in the workplace, in a supermarket, in the coming and going of life. And you can spot somebody where you can look and say, I bet that um, they just put $10 of gasoline in that car because that's all the money they have. And I think maybe I could help them out related to this or maybe help out related to groceries or whatever. There's a whole world of poor people. I don't know what the percentage would be, but they will never let us know or you or me know that they are poor or of their need, but it's there. And I think it's good to ask God, God, would you help us to um, discern not only the obviously poor, but those that are less obvious and that we can uh, have pity on the poor, lend to them, give to them, and lend to you, Lord, uh, as a result. And so a very, very uh, good and important proverb 
Um, and God can really use it to impact people's lives, not only to build margins in their lives that, that they need and we need, but um, also as a way of opening the door related to the gospel. Nobody else is going to do that. It's going to be Christians that are going to do that uh, for the most part. Verse 18, chasten your son while there's hope. And do not set your heart on his destruction. And so this is a proverb that speaks about the importance of disciplining our children. And the earlier, the better. And that word chasten doesn't just mean spanking, but it means discipling. It means training. It means saying, son, I saw what you did there. And let's sit down and let's talk about that. And let let me tell you a better way to handle that situation and, and so there's talking, there is spanking, there is corporal punishment, uh, there is restriction, there is a lot of different things that can go into it. But it isn't always like um, punishment. A lot of it is talking about training and the importance of uh, training our children. And so we're training our children. We want them to be successful in life. That is, we want them to be able to live the Christian life in whatever environment God is going to put them into the middle of. And uh, that means they need correction. Every child uh, is a descendant of Adam and Eve. They are born with a sin nature. And they need to be chastened or trained out of obeying that nature in order to then obey the Lord. And the earlier we do that, the better. You know, sometimes they talk about kids, how they can... Um, if you get them before the age of seven, you can teach them languages and they can learn four or five languages before the age of seven, just like nothing. And then afterwards, it's like pulling teeth to get them to learn um, how to say hi in a foreign language. And there's just that period of time where they they can be fashioned like that. And so there are these seasons in life, the earlier the better, to fashion them. doesn't mean that later that we can't train them properly, and so often we come to know the Lord. Our kids are halfway grown. Sometimes we start to become the kind of parent that God wants us to become. It's never too late. God adds His grace to all of that, but the earlier, uh, the better. So we have this wonderful uh, proverb that speaks about, uh, kind of condemns any kind of, um, you know, parental passivity toward their children and toward disciplining them. And, of course, there's a very important proverb related to our culture where so many kids are not being raised uh, by their parents or they're being nominally raised by their parents. The parents are not engaged in a full way in training that child to live for the Lord and walk for the Lord. They're put in front of the television. They're trained by television. They're trained by their peers. They're trained by public education. They're trained by everyone. Uh, But... Uh, but the parents who have the opportunity to train them in the things of the Lord. And so the importance of it. When he says, don't, uh, and do not set your heart on his destruction, uh, this means that sometimes when we train our children, uh, there's a pushback. And sometimes you spank them, and it sounds like you're destroying them. But you're not destroying them. I mean, you don't beat them black and blue. We use that kind of discipline, and sometimes it will pull back from corporal punishment because 
uh, a child can learn how to scream a little bit louder than the application of the corporal punishment and what is warranted. Or you take a child and you say, no, I don't care what all of your friends are doing. Um, in this household, we don't do that. And so, no, no, <laughs> I'm such a freak in this city. I'm the only one that doesn't get to do this. Do you know what it's like? You've just destroyed their life. Later on, if they keep their heads screwed on straight, they'll write their autobiography and thank you. I remember the one time that Dad sat me down and told me, and I gave him all that grief and all of this, and told him, you're ruining my life, you're destroying my life, I can't believe it, because they're kids. They don't know what they're going to need in adult life. They've never been an adult yet. God knows what they're going to need. And so the importance of training them, whatever their response uh, might be. Verse 19, a man of great wrath will suffer punishment. And so this speaks of the person who's always in trouble because of their uh, temper. For if you rescue him, you'll have to do it all over again. So here's a guy who's got a bad temper, and he ends up in jail continually because of his temper. And the proverb says, listen, uh, you if you're going to leave him in jail and let him bear the full consequences of his actions so that he can learn to change that area of his life, otherwise you keep bailing him out, he's never going to take any of that uh, seriously. So sometimes it isn't a kindness to people to... Uh, remove the consequences of their actions off of them easily when the only thing that's going to cure them of this particular area of their life, whatever it might be, is to bear the consequences of it and then be willing to change. I think about the bumper sticker that I saw um, a couple of years ago on a pickup truck, of course on a pickup truck, and it said, stupid should hurt. I was riding my bike past it. I thought, man, I really like that. About 90% of what I've learned in life has come from the stupid angle. And then you bear the consequences of it and you say, you know, there's a part of me that likes being stupid. But then there's a part of me that really hates digging myself out of the stupid side of me. And so I think I'm going to change that. And it's an important part of things. Don't, don't bail people out of, uh, of every situation that, uh, then, that then doesn't make them face their problem and then deal with it, especially when that problem is self-destructive and dangerous. Verse 20, listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. So young people should give uh, the greater portion of their youth, not to learning how to rebel, but in learning how to please the Lord and how to uh, walk with the Lord. The earlier we learn something in life, the longer it's in our life to serve us. And so here we live in the United States of America where we are taught in, in many ways that a childhood is just something that can be frittered away in many respects. It can be wasted. 
And then now we extend uh, childhood. So now if you go to college, you get to do this and then here. And then we've got the parents' health plan and the div. And I'm not putting any of that down, you know, wholesale. But we can keep people in this, like, uh, protracted season of uh, irresponsibility if that's what they're aiming at. And, and, and so you've got this... Um, the, uh, you've got this season where the earlier that you learn something, the longer it is that it will serve you. And that's important. And why get beat up by something that we can earn, er, learn earlier uh, in our life? And so we praise the Lord for children's ministry and youth ministry and all of those things. It's one thing to get you know, beat up in life because nobody told you uh, nobody ever said that to me. Nobody sat me down and talked to me about that. I never knew that. It's the school of hard knocks. And uh, far better to receive the instruction. And then, again, earlier uh, the better. Verse 21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. So we're free to make plans in our life. And those plans, though, are always to be submitted to the Lord. So to be flexible, Lord. I want, this is what I'd like to see happen here. This is what I think you're doing here. This is where I want to go related to this. I think this would be wise. And then, Lord, but you have the final say uh, related to this and be willing to then just flow with uh, whatever he wants to do. I think it's always good to realize, and it's an important truth, is if God ever says no to your plan, it is only in order to do something even better. And that really is a salve to any disappointment. And it'll just be a matter how could anything be better than the plan that I had? Hold that thought. I will check back with you in six months or in six years. And then by that point you say, I am so glad God did not do what I wanted him to do at that point. What he had in mind was unbelievably better. And that's just the way that it is. Verse 22, what is desired in a man is kindness. That's a beautiful thing in a man's life, isn't it? Any person's life, kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. So we like kindness in other people. And uh, it's better to be a poor man, again, than being a liar who is making himself rich off of his lies. Because, again, we have our integrity. We'll stop there tonight. We'll pick it up in verse 23 um, next week. And uh, those are enough kind of nuggets to have in our heart and uh, to then now invite the worship team to come up and to lead us in a little bit of more worship, to just give the Lord praise and give Him thanks and adoration that He is due. And then if there's anything that we've looked at tonight where um, you... uh, uh, we say, boy, that hit kind of close to home, or I think I need a minute or two before I get pick up the kids or I go out to the car to really talk with the Lord related to that. And some of these Proverbs, they're really barbed arrow, barbed arrows, an arrow that has barbs on it that you can't pull out easily. You pull it out and a whole bunch of flesh comes out uh, with it. And they're intended to really go in deep and to penetrate and uh, in order that we would respond and say, all right, 
this is a lack of wisdom in my life. I'm living this way. I saw the correction of your word tonight, and I want to settle that, Lord, before I walk out of this room. So let's worship him and allow his Holy Spirit to continue to work in our lives.